Chapter Two of the Oregon Trail. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Oregon Trail by Francis Parkman, Jr. Chapter Two Breaking the Ice. Both Shaw and myself were tolerably inured to the vicissitudes of traveling. We had experienced them under various forms, and a birch canoe was as familiar to us as a steamboat. The restlessness, the love of wilds, and hatred of cities, natural perhaps in early years to every unperverted son of Adam, was not our only motive for undertaking the present journey. My companion hoped to shake off the effects of a disorder that had impaired a constitution originally hardy and robust, and I was as anxious to pursue some inquiries relative to the character and usages of the remote Indian nations, being already familiar with many of the border tribes. Emerging from the mud-hole where we last took leave of the reader, we pursued our way for some time along the narrow track in the checkered sunshine and shadow of the woods, till at length, issuing forth into the broad light, we left behind us the farthest outskirts of that great forest that once spread unbroken from the western plains to the shore of the Atlantic. Looking over an intervening belt of shrubbery, we saw the green ocean-like expanse of prairie stretching swell over swell to the horizon. It was a mild, calm spring day, a day when one is more disposed to musing and reverie than to action, and the softest part of his nature is apt to gain the ascendancy. I rode in advance of the party as we passed through the shrubbery, and as a nook of green grass offered a strong temptation, I dismounted and lay down there. All the trees and saplings were in flower, or budding into fresh leaf. The red clusters of the maple blossoms and the rich flowers of the Indian apple were there in profusion, and I was half inclined to regret leaving behind the land of gardens for the rude and stern scenes of the prairie and the mountains. Meanwhile the party came in sight from out of the bushes. Foremost rode Henry Chatillon, our guide and hunter, a fine athletic figure mounted on a hardy gray Wyandotte pony. He wore a white blanket coat, a broad hat of felt, moccasins and pantaloons of deerskin, ornamented along the seams with rows of long fringes. His knife was stuck in his belt, his bullet pouch and powder horn hung at his side, and his rifle lay before him, resting against the high pommel of his saddle, which, like all his equipments, had seen hard service and was much the worse for wear. Shaw followed close, mounted on a little sorrel horse, and leading a larger animal by a rope. His outfit, which resembled mine, had been provided with a view to use rather than ornament. It consisted of a plain black Spanish saddle with holsters of heavy pistols, a blanket rolled up behind it, and the trail rope attached to his horse's neck hanging coiled in front. He carried a double-barreled smoothbore, while I boasted a rifle of some fifteen pounds weight. At that time our attire, though far from elegant, bore some marks of civilization, and offered a very favorable contrast to the inimitable shabbiness of our appearance on the return journey. A red flannel shirt, belted around the waist like a frock, then constituted our upper garment. Moccasins had supplanted our failing boots, and the remaining essential portion of our attire consisted of an extraordinary article manufactured by a squaw out of smoked buckskin. Our muleteer, Delorier, brought up the rear with his cart, waddling ankle-deep in the mud, 
alternately puffing at his pipe and ejaculating in his prairie patois, Sacré enfant de garce! as one of the mules would seem to recoil before some abyss of unusual profundity. The cart was of the kind that one may see by scores around the marketplace in Montreal, and had a white covering to protect the articles within. These were our provisions, and a tent with ammunition, blankets, and presents for the Indians. We were in all four men with eight animals, for beside the spare horses led by Shaw and myself, an additional mule was driven along with us as a reserve in case of accident. After this summing up of our forces, it may not be amiss to glance at the characters of the two men who accompanied us. Delorier was a Canadian, with all the characteristics of the true Jean-Baptiste. Neither fatigue, exposure, nor hard labor could ever impair his cheerfulness and gaiety, or his obsequious politeness to his bourgeois, and when night came he would sit down by the fire, smoke his pipe, and tell stories with the utmost contentment. In fact, the prairie was his congenial element. Henry Chatillon was of a different stamp. When we were at St. Louis, several gentlemen of the fur company had kindly offered to procure for us a hunter and guide suited for our purposes, and on coming one afternoon to the office, we found there a tall and exceedingly well-dressed man with a face so open and frank that it attracted our notice at once. We were surprised at being told that it was he who wished to guide us to the mountains. He was born in a little French town near St. Louis, and from the age of fifteen years had been constantly in the neighborhood of the Rocky Mountains, employed for the most part by the company to supply their forts with buffalo meat. As a hunter he had but one rival in the whole region, a man named Simoneau, with whom, to the honor of both of them, he was on terms of the closest friendship. He had arrived at St. Louis the day before from the mountains, where he had remained for four years, and he now only asked to go and spend a day with his mother before setting out on another expedition. His age was about thirty. He was six feet high and very powerfully and gracefully molded. The prairies had been his school. He could neither read nor write, but he had a natural refinement and delicacy of mind such as is rarely found even in women. His manly face was a perfect mirror of uprightness, simplicity, and kindness of heart. He had, moreover, a keen perception of character and a tact that would preserve him from flagrant error in any society. Henry had not the restless energy of an Anglo-American. He was content to take things as he found them, and his chief fault arose from an excess of easy generosity, impelling him to give away too profusely ever to thrive in the world. Yet it was commonly remarked of him that whatever he might choose to do with what belonged to himself, the property of others was always safe in his hands. His bravery was as much celebrated in the mountains as his skill in hunting, but it is characteristic of him that in a country where the rifle is the chief arbiter between man and man, Henry was very seldom involved in quarrels. Once or twice, indeed, his quiet good nature had been mistaken and presumed upon, but the consequences of the error were so formidable that no one was ever known to repeat it. No better evidence of the intrepidity of his temper could be wished than the common report that he had killed more than thirty grizzly bears. He was a proof of what unaided nature will sometimes do. I have never, in the city or in the wilderness, met a better man than my noble and true-hearted friend, Henry Chatillon. 
We were soon free of the woods and bushes and fairly upon the broad prairie. Now and then a Shawano passed us, riding his little shaggy pony at a lope, his calico shirt, his gaudy sash, and the gay handkerchief bound around his snaky hair fluttering in the wind. At noon we stopped to rest not far from a little creek replete with frogs and young turtles. There had been an Indian encampment at the place, and the framework of their lodges still remained, enabling us very easily to gain a shelter from the sun by merely spreading one or two blankets over them. Thus shaded, we sat upon our saddles, and Shaw for the first time lighted his favorite Indian pipe, while Delorier was squatted over a hotbed of coals, shading his eyes with one hand and holding a little stick in the other, with which he regulated the hissing contents of the frying-pan. The horses were turned to feed among the scattered bushes of a low, oozy meadow. A drowsy spring-like sultriness pervaded the air, and the voices of ten thousand young frogs and insects, just awakened into life, rose in varied chorus from the creek and the meadows. Scarcely were we seated when a visitor approached. This was an old Kansas Indian, a man of distinction, if one might judge from his dress. His head was shaved and painted red and from the tuft of hair remaining on the crown dangled several eagle's feathers and the tails of two or three rattlesnakes. His cheeks, too, were daubed with vermilion, his ears were adorned with green glass pendants, a collar of grizzly bear's claws surrounded his neck, and several large necklaces of wampum hung on his breast. Having shaken us by the hand with a cordial grunt of salutation, the old man, dropping his red blanket from his shoulders, sat down cross-legged on the ground. In the absence of liquor, we offered him a cup of sweetened water, at which he ejaculated, Good! and was beginning to tell us how great a man he was, and how many Pawnees he had killed, when suddenly a motley concourse appeared wading across the creek toward us. They filed past in rapid succession, men, women, and children, some were on horseback, some on foot, but all were alike squalid and wretched. Old squaws mounted astride of shaggy, meager little ponies, with perhaps one or two snake-eyed children seated behind them, clinging to their tattered blankets. Tall, lank young men on foot, with bows and arrows in their hands, and girls whose native ugliness not all the charms of glass beads and scarlet cloth could disguise, made up the procession, although here and there was a man who, like our visitor, seemed to hold some rank in this respectable community. They were the dregs of the Kansas nation, who, while their betters were gone to hunt buffalo, had left the village on a begging expedition to Westport. When this ragamuffin horde had passed, we caught our horses, saddled, harnessed, and resumed our journey. Fording the creek, the low roofs of a number of rude buildings appeared, rising from a cluster of groves and woods on the left, and, riding up through a long lane amid a profusion of wild roses and early spring flowers, we found the log church and schoolhouses belonging to the Methodist Shawano Mission. The Indians were on the point of gathering to a religious meeting. Some scores of them, tall men in half-civilized dress, were seated on wooden benches under the trees, while their horses were tied to the sheds and fences. Their chief, Parks, a remarkably large and athletic man, was just arrived from Westport, where he owns a trading establishment. Beside this, he has a fine farm and a considerable number of slaves. 
Indeed, the Shawanos have made greater progress in agriculture than any other tribe on the Missouri frontier, and both in appearance and in character form a marked contrast to our late acquaintance, the Kansas. A few hours' ride brought us to the banks of the river Kansas. Traversing the woods that lined it and plowing through the deep sand, we encamped not far from the bank at the lower Delaware crossing. Our tent was erected for the first time on a meadow close to the woods, and the camp preparations being complete, we began to think of supper. An old Delaware woman of some three hundred pounds weight sat in the porch of a little log house close to the water, and a very pretty half-breed girl was engaged under her superintendence in feeding a large flock of turkeys that were fluttering and gobbling about the door. But no offers of money or even of tobacco could induce her to part with one of her favorites, so I took my rifle to see if the woods or the river could furnish us anything. A multitude of quails were plaintively whistling in the woods and meadows, but nothing appropriate to the rifle was to be seen, except three buzzards seated on the spectral limbs of an old dead sycamore that thrust itself out over the river from the dense sunny wall of fresh foliage. Their ugly heads were drawn down between their shoulders, and they seemed to luxuriate in the soft sunshine that was pouring from the west. As they offered no Epicurean temptations, I refrained from disturbing their enjoyment, but contented myself with admiring the calm beauty of the sunset, for the river, eddying swiftly in deep purple shadows between the impending woods, formed a wild but tranquilizing scene. When I returned to the camp, I found Shaw and an old Indian seated on the ground in close conference, passing the pipe between them. The old man was explaining that he loved the whites, and had an especial partiality for tobacco. Delorier was arranging upon the ground our service of tin cups and plates, and as other viands were not to be had, he set before us a repast of biscuit and bacon, and a large pot of coffee. Unsheathing our knives, we attacked it, disposed of the greater part, and tossed the residue to the Indian. Meanwhile, our horses, now hobbled for the first time, stood among the trees, with their forelegs tied together, in great disgust and astonishment. They seemed by no means to relish this foretaste of what was before them. Mine, in particular, had conceived a moral aversion to the prairie life. One of them, christened Hendrick, an animal whose strength and hardihood were his only merits, and who yielded to nothing but the cogent arguments of the whip, looked toward us with an indignant countenance, as if he meditated avenging his wrongs with a kick. The other, Pontiac, a good horse, though of plebeian lineage, stood with his head drooping, and his mane hanging about his eyes, with the grieved and sulky air of a lubberly boy sent off to school. Poor Pontiac! His forebodings were but too just, for when I last heard from him, he was under the lash of an Ogallala brave on a war party against the Crows. As it grew dark and the voices of the whippoorwills succeeded the whistle of the quails, we removed our saddles to the tent to serve as pillows, spread our blankets upon the ground, and prepared to bivouac for the first time that season. Each man selected the place in the tent which he was to occupy for the journey. To Delorier, however, was assigned the cart, into which he could creep in wet weather, and find a much better shelter than his bourgeois enjoyed in the tent. The river Kansas at this point forms the boundary line between the country of the Shawanos and that of the Delawares. 
we crossed it on the following day rafting over our horses and equipage with much difficulty and unloading our cart in order to make our way up the steep ascent on the farther bank it was a sunday morning warm tranquil and bright and a perfect stillness reigned over the rough enclosures and neglected fields of the delawares except the ceaseless hum and chirruping of myriads of insects now and then an indian rode past on his way to the meeting-house or through the dilapidated entrance of some shattered log-house an old woman might be discerned enjoying all the luxury of idleness there was no village bell for the delawares have none and yet upon that forlorn and rude settlement was the same spirit of sabbath repose and tranquillity as in some little new england village among the mountains of new hampshire or the vermont woods having at present no leisure for such reflections we pursued our journey a military road led from this point to fort leavenworth and for many miles the farms and cabins of the delawares were scattered at short intervals on either hand the little rude structures of logs erected usually on the borders of attractive woods made a picturesque feature in the landscape but the scenery needed no foreign aid nature had done enough for it and the alteration of rich green prairies and groves that stood in clusters or lined the banks of the numerous little streams had all the softened and polished beauty of a region that has been for centuries under the hand of man at that early season too it was the height of its freshness and luxuriance the woods were flushed with the red buds of the maple there were frequent flowering shrubs unknown in the east and the green swells of the prairies were thickly studded with blossoms encamping near a spring by the side of a hill we resumed our journey in the morning and early in the afternoon had arrived within a few miles of fort leavenworth the road crossed a stream densely bordered with trees and running on the bottom of a deep woody hollow we were about to descend into it when a wild and confused procession appeared passing through the water below and coming up the steep ascent toward us we stopped to let them pass they were delawares just returned from a hunting expedition all both men and women were mounted on horseback and drove along with them a considerable number of pack mules laden with the furs they had taken together with the buffalo robes kettles and other articles of their travelling equipment which as well as their clothing and their weapons had a worn and dingy aspect as if they had seen hard service of late at the rear of the party was an old man who as he came up stopped his horse to speak to us he rode a little tough shaggy pony with mane and tail well knotted with burrs and a rusty spanish bit in its mouth to which by way of reins was attached a string of rawhide his saddle robbed probably from a mexican had no covering being merely a tree of the spanish form with a piece of grizzly bear's skin laid over it a pair of rude wooden stirrups attached and in the absence of a girth a thong of hide passing around the horse's belly the rider's dark features and keen snaky eyes were unequivocally indian he wore a buckskin frock which like his fringed leggings was well polished and blackened by grease and long service and an old handkerchief was tied around his head resting on the saddle before him lay his rifle a weapon in the use of which the delawares are skillful though from its weight the distant prairie indians are too lazy to carry it who's your chief he immediately inquired henry chatillon pointed to us the old delaware fixed his eyes intently upon us for a moment and then sententiously remarked no good 
too young. With this flattering comment he left us and rode after his people. This tribe, the Delawares, once the peaceful allies of William Penn, the tributaries of the conquering Iroquois, are now the most adventurous and dreaded warriors upon the prairies. They make war upon remote tribes, the very names of which were unknown to their fathers in their ancient seats in Pennsylvania, and they push these new quarrels with true Indian rancor, sending out their little war parties as far as the Rocky Mountains and into the Mexican territories. Their neighbors and former confederates, the Shawanos, who are tolerable farmers, are in a prosperous condition. But the Delawares dwindle every year from the number of men lost in their warlike expeditions. Soon after leaving this party, we saw, stretching on the right, the forests that follow the course of the Missouri, and the deep woody channel through which at this point it runs. At a distance in front were the white barracks of Fort Leavenworth, just visible through the trees upon an eminence above a bend of the river. A wide green meadow, as level as a lake, lay between us and the Missouri, and upon this, close to a line of trees that bordered a little brook, stood the tent of the captain and his companions, with their horses feeding around it, but they themselves were invisible. Wright, their muleteer, was there, seated on the tongue of the wagon, repairing his harness. Boisvert stood cleaning his rifle at the door of the tent, and Sorel lounged idly about. On closer examination, however, we discovered the captain's brother, Jack, sitting in the tent at his old occupation of splicing trail ropes. He welcomed us in his broad Irish brogue, and said that his brother was fishing on the river, and R. gone to the garrison. They returned before sunset. Meanwhile we erected our own tent not far off, and after supper a council was held, in which it was resolved to remain one day at Fort Leavenworth, and on the next to bid a final adieu to the frontier, or in the phraseology of the region, to jump off. Our deliberations were conducted by the ruddy light from a distant swell of the prairie, where the long dry grass of last summer was on fire. End of chapter 2